Second Kings chapter 8, if you want to turn with me there. We continue to follow along with the ministry of Elisha the prophet, and we're going to jump right in here into chapter 8 as we carry on with God working through Elisha. It tells us in chapter 8, verse 1, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. And if you remember, that's a few chapters back. This was a woman who graciously seemed her and her husband to develop a relationship with Elisha, the prophet. And as he would journey through the area, they set up sort of a little uh, lodging place for him in their home. They became gracious hosts and showed hospitality to him, gave him a little area where he had a sleeping quarters and it seems a little kind of study lounge as well as he would make a circuit around the area. Uh, He wanted to do something to bless them in return and was wondering what he could do and found out that they were uh, unable to have children up to that point. And so uh, by the word of the Lord gave to them a promise that they were going to have a child. And of course, uh, God honored his word, gave to this couple a child. And not too long after they began to be attached to this son and love him, uh, an accident, some sort had happened uh, and the child uh, lost its life there. Remember the The young boy died right on his mother's lap, but yet she, having faith, brought her son to Elisha, and Elisha interceded and pleaded with God to restore the life of this uh, child back to these parents, and miraculously, God performed a uh, resuscitation. God brought back the life of this child through the prayers and intercession of his servant, Elisha, and the child's life was restored and, and given back to this mother. So again, just this incredible experience that this family shared together with Elisha. It seems he had this kind of unique bond with with them and it tells us here that this same woman whose son he had restored to life uh, that he spoke to her giving her now an, an insight and a warning from the Lord certainly because he cared about them the word of the Lord came to him and he delivered it to this family saying to them arise and go you and your household and stay wherever you can for the Lord has called for a famine And furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So uh, interestingly enough, as we've seen, God seems to continuously reveal things to Elijah. Certainly Elijah just really seemed to be someone really in tune with the Lord. God was speaking to Elijah continuously. We've seen numerous occasions now where God will reveal things to Elijah about what was going on in someone else's life. God would let him see things in advance before they would come to pass. And here we have another occasion where God gives revelation to Elisha the prophet, and this time that he might give a word from the Lord to help out this family. This sort of reminds us, Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants the prophets. Uh, And certainly Elisha, one of the prophets of the Lord, God's hand was upon him. God was using him. And we see this occasion happening, even as Amos 3 says, where the Lord is about to do something. Particularly, it says the Lord had called for a famine to come upon the land. 
for seven years. Again, this was a divinely orchestrated famine. This wasn't just a uh, natural set of circumstances. This was divinely inspired by God himself. God caused this famine to come upon the land for his purposes. We're not told exactly why. We do know uh, in the uh, books of the law, the Mosaic law, that numerous times, Deuteronomy and other places, God speaks about how if his people would disobey him, if they would disregard his word, if they would begin to rebel or enter into idolatry and turn away from God, that one of the things God would do at times to get their attention, uh, to reorient them spiritually, is sometimes God would allow for a famine to come along upon the land, a drought, a time of difficulty. Uh, again, remember, they were an agrarian society, so that was basically like God's way of just putting a divine sanction on their economy. <laughs> if God called for a famine and there was no food and it was difficult, that caused a great economic crisis for the people, which would ultimately then cause them to typically reevaluate their ways. It would humble them, and a lot of times it would cause them to turn back to God. So uh, very likely that God's bringing this famine for a purpose. Again, God allows at times hardships and difficulties, and he's prescribed this famine, particularly at this time, the nation of Israel in the north is living very ungodly. They're into all types of immorality. Uh, they're turning to all types of things that are away from God and rebellion. And so God here bringing a disciplinary action upon the nation to try and gain their attention. But in the midst of this, the Lord has already revealed this secret, if you would, before it happens to Elisha, as Amos 3 says, God's revealed this to Elisha. And so Elisha now comes knowing what the Lord's going to do. God gave him insight about this. And he tells this woman who he cared about, listen, the Lord is going to bring a famine. It's going to last seven years. It's not going to just be a short thing. So he says to her, go, you and your household, and go and stay wherever you can. In other words, get out of this land uh, and find somewhere where you can fare better and you won't experience the hardship of this time. Now, uh, we're going to read in verse 2 that she obeys and goes over to the land of the Philistines, where she'll dwell for seven years. Now, keep in mind, the land of the Philistines is not that far from the land of Israel. Uh, so God is very strategic in where he targets this famine to come. This wasn't a widespread famine. God was purposely bringing uniquely a famine to the land of Israel because he was strategically trying to get his people's attention and bring them to a place of humility and repentance, it seems, once again. Uh, but interesting to see here how this word of the Lord comes and it gives to this woman insight in regards to what she ought to do in her life. The word of God comes to her and says, look, this is insight, this is direction, now therefore respond accordingly. Prepare accordingly. Do what God is leading you to do so that you don't experience things that would make it more difficult for you. He says, arise, go stay wherever you can. Now, interesting as well that when God's word comes to her, he tells her some details and he gives her general instruction. But notice, God does not completely regulate every little detail. He just says, go, stay wherever you can. So I like that. Sometimes God gives us indication sometimes God speaks to us about something and he says listen I'm, I'm letting you know this is going to transpire or this is around the corner or this is what I'm going to do in your life or what's on the horizon and he gives to us a word of insight and perhaps attached with it a word of instruction 
But then God still allows us to carry out our free will to some degree in a cooperative way whereby he doesn't regulate to the specific exactly what we have to do. He just says, get out of here and go find another location to live. God's word was get out of here, move on. You need to go and make a new step. You need to separate yourself from where you've been and you need to establish yourself in a new spot. But the Lord doesn't say how exactly to go about that or specifically. It's kind of like the Lord saying, look, it, time, is, time is up at this job. This is dried up. There's a famine here. Time, but, and, and you gotta, it's time to find a new job. But the Lord doesn't tell you, do you got to go work at you know, Walmart or Kmart or you know, Edward Jones? Or, or it doesn't say where. He just says, this place is done. Find a new location. And sometimes God will speak to us, but yet how wonderful. He gives us the freedom to be able to still exercise and have some latitude in what we do in regards to our life. But he's always speaking to us for our benefit to give us guidance and instruction. And Elisha here, in this word that he brings to this woman, I think is a beautiful picture of how the word of God often works in our lives. Elisha is the prophet. And these prophets spoke forth the word of God. And for you and I, the wonderful thing is First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter one says that we have the prophetic word confirmed, referring to scripture. And, and that all scripture has been given by the inspiration of God and that God has given to us his living and active word. And as we get into the word of God, as we're reading the scripture and we're availing ourselves to hearing the word of God taught to us from the pulpit, through the radio, through Bible teaching programs, the wonderful thing, it's oftentimes through the word of God that God speaks prophetically, personally into our lives. I know that's how it happens with me. And God gives us insight. And as you're just reading the word of God or, or listening perhaps to the word of God, it's amazing how God in a timely way, in a very personal way, will speak a word into your life and you're like, wow, Lord, thank you for revealing to me what's going on. And just by reading that, the word comes off the page or some prophetic word comes through a teaching and it's like, Lord, thank you for giving me insight, confirming something I needed to know so that I can then act accordingly for the best interest in my life. And what a wonderful value God's word brings to us. So Elijah brings this word, and verse 2 says, The woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God. And she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. So that's called being not only a hearer, but a doer of the word. Isn't that what James tells us to do? James tells us not only to be hearers of the word, but that we're to do what it says. That when God speaks to us, it's not for us just to nod our head and say, amen, I agree with that. But now I'm going to go on and continue to keep doing what I'm doing. God speaks to us, not just to give us you know, uh, some interesting insight. God speaks to us to instruct us what to do. Go do this, act upon that, respond, stop doing this, start doing that. And here, this is called being a doer of the word. She listened, she acted upon the instruction that God gave to her. She now arose and did according to the word of the Lord from the man of God. She obeyed God's word. There's a picture there of both faith and obedience. Again, she doesn't have all the details. Also, the only detail she has is a famine's coming that's going to last for seven long years. That's why it would be good to get out of the land. She doesn't have all the details. She doesn't have the whole thing mapped out. And that's a lot of times our problem, right? 
the Lord gives us a general sense or sort of a, you know, a phrase or two of instruction and insight. He kind of says, this is what I want you to do and here's what's why. And we kind of know the general picture and the Lord says, now do it. And we go, but Lord, I, can I have a little better map and a few more details? And he says, no, just arise and go. And just like Abraham, it tells us that the Lord said to Abraham, depart from this country. And Abraham arose and he went and God said, go to a land that I will show you. Can you imagine poor Abraham trying to tell his wife that the Lord's telling them to move on? He comes to her and he says, honey, the Lord appeared to me and he said that we're to depart from this land. Okay, if you're telling me that the one true God of the universe spoke to you and said, we're supposed to depart from this land, that's going to be hard. We're going to have to leave family. That's going to be difficult. But I trust if God's telling us to do that, 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 that that's the right thing to do. So, okay, I'll follow your lead. Where are we going? Uh, to a land. Okay, what land? Well, he hasn't quite told me that. He says we're to go to a land that he will tell me. In other words, once Abraham started going, then God showed him the land he was supposed to go to. Imagine that. And you thought it's hard following God in your life sometimes. Abraham had to pack up everything and start heading out. And as he was going, God gave more revelation. And so she here in an act of faith, she arises, she begins to move on and ultimately they settle down, they dwell in the land of Philistines, an act of faith and obedience, not that far away, but far enough away where the Philistine uh, people weren't experiencing this same famine. And verse three says it came to pass at the end of seven years. So imagine seven years now, God said it would last that long. And according to the word of the Lord, the famine comes to an end. Interesting, seven in the Bible is often the number symbolic of completion. There's seven notes in a scale, seven days in a week. So again, it's been a sort of been a complete uh, act of God's discipline, it seems, upon the nation. He let the famine come to an end at the end of seven years. It came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman then returned from the land of the Philistines. She knew it was only going to last seven years. It was safe to return home now. And again, others may have thought, why are you going home? Are you, how are you sure? What if it lasts eight years, nine years, ten years? Why could she go home? Because she had the word of God. And the word of God gave her the ability and faith to say, listen, I, God told me seven years and God keeps his word. And so it's been seven years. I'm going back home now. And so she heads back home with confidence as the famine comes to an end. And as she gets back home... She finds, it says, that someone has sort of taken over the territory of her land because it says she went to make appeal to the king for her house and for her land. In other words, as she returns home, she finds her land and the house that sits upon her land, farmland, that kind of we would say people are there acting as squatters. They've come in and they've settled into her house and they've taken over her land and they're working now starting to work her fields. And, and so she has to go to the king and appeal. Wait a minute. These people have they've taken advantage of me. They've this land still belongs to me and my family, according to Jewish inheritance. Just because I temporarily moved on doesn't mean I sold my land or I gave up my land. They're illegally possessing my land now, taking advantage of this woman and her family. So look what she does. It says, verse three, she goes and appeals to the king for her house and for her land. I love the language there. Certainly very symbolic, I think, and, and beautiful in typology of exactly sometimes what we need to do. We need to go and appeal to our king. We need to appeal to the throne, not to some human king, but to the king of kings, to the throne of grace, to the throne of God. We need to appeal to our king for our house and for our land. 
Would to God that we would do more of that. That we would look and say, you know what? Uh, An enemy has occupied my house. And an enemy has gotten into my house and he is taking territory that does not belong to him. And so, Lord, I'm coming to you as the king. Would you please work on my behalf and get this enemy out of my house? Lord, an enemy has come in and made havoc and taken over the land. And the enemy is controlling our land in a way that it's not according to what would be right for him to control our land. So we're coming to the king. Would you, would you drive the enemy out? And not allow him to do what he's doing. And I think just a beautiful picture there to go and make appeal to the throne, to the throne of God. If we go and appeal for our house and for our land at times. In verse 4, the king talked, it says, with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now, very interesting that the Bible inserts this reference here that it's Gehazi the servant of the man of God, who's now in the midst of this woman coming in, as we'll see, he's sitting there having a dialogue with the king of Israel at this time, talking about Elisha and what miraculous things he's been doing by the power of God working in his life. Now, if you remember, what makes that interesting is not too long ago, just a few chapters back, remember Gehazi was the servant of Elisha when Naaman the Syrian came with leprosy And he received a healing by the power of God through Elisha's ministry. And he wanted to give this grand gift to Elisha to compensate him, to thank him, because he was so thankful that he'd experienced a healing. And Elisha said, look, God works by grace. Uh, And that, that work of God was completely by grace. And I don't need your gift or your present. But remember, Gehazi, with a sinful and a greedy heart, the servant of Elisha, after Naaman the Syrian left, he chased after him without Elisha being aware of that. And remember, he chased after him. He thought, hey, if he's not going to take some money, I'm going to take some money. So he ran after him and he thought, this is a great opportunity to make some money off of somebody who's really thankful for what God did in his life. And I'm going to prey on this naive, gullible new believer. So he goes and chases him down gets a few garments of uh, clothing and some precious metals and brings it back and he hides it away. And remember when he goes back into Elisha, Elisha says, where have you been, Gehazi? And he says, oh, I haven't been anywhere. And he says, Gehazi, did my heart go with you when you went and took that money and the gold and the silver and more than that, Gehazi, I see everything in your heart. You're looking to build your own property and have servants and, and you have this grand picture of how you're gonna rip off all these people and, and prostitute the things of God and enrich yourself financially and the greed and evil ideas that are in your heart. And, and, and as the result of that, remember, God brought judgment upon Gehazi and the leprosy that was on Naaman actually came upon Gehazi. Now, what we don't know is what's being recorded here in this portion. Is this just perhaps out of chronological order in the sense of how its flow is laid out in the Bible in that these events happened prior to that experience? Because one might say, why would the king want anything to do with someone who's a leper? Because Gehazi is right in the king's court and he's having a conversation with him. That could be possible. Again, the king is ungodly, so maybe the king doesn't really care and he doesn't have the same sort of code of ethics as the Mosaic law and so therefore he is willing and maybe Gehazi being so angry and bittered by Elisha saying you're done in God's work that he's now just gone and attached himself sort of to the ungodly immoral evil king of Israel maybe that is why he's in the king's court so maybe this happened prior to him contracting leprosy 
Or it could be that maybe he's just there because he's so embittered. But nonetheless, the king is curious. He says, tell me, tell me some things about this Elisha, the great miracles that this prophet of God has been doing. Interesting that all that Gehazi is worth and able to talk about at this point is what God has done. He can't talk about what God is doing anymore. And again, because of where he's at in his life, it's always a sad thing when all you can do is talk about the things that God's done instead of being able to talk about, hey, what's God doing? What's God doing right now? The only thing he can give record of is the things that the Lord has done in the past through Elijah. But the king's curious. Tell me some stories. So verse five, it says it happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elijah restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So take notice what happens. As that woman from verse 3 we read is going back to appeal to the king for her house and for her land, At the same time, unknowingly, here's Gehazi having just this everyday conversation, oblivious to the fact that she's on her way in. And the king is saying, so tell me about Elisha and the great things he's done. So let me tell you some really awesome story. There was this one time when he restored this woman's son back to life. I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, he just, you should have seen. It was amazing. I mean, the kid was really dead and he just went in. He prayed and pleaded with God and the kid's life was restored. Miraculously, he came back to life from the dead. And right as he's telling that story, Here comes that woman with her son walking into the courts of the throne there. And all of a sudden, Gehazi is just astonished. He says, oh my goodness, king, that's the woman right there. Like, this is the woman that we were just talking about. And again, what is this? It's not a coincidence. It's called providence. It's called that we serve a God Providence, literally, comes from two words, pro and where we would say video. The idea is to be able to see ahead. God sees all things, knows all things, and so God seeing ahead in providence is directing everything that happens. We don't believe in coincidence or chance. Uh, We believe in God instances that God directs everything and coordinates everything that happens, and there is no such thing as coincidence. And God can work over here in this situation and be working in this situation, in this situation, and have this person at the right time be at this place to intersect with this person right as this is going on, as right as that is going on. And it's amazing how God in his providence, because he sees everything in advance, can orchestrate events like this. And what a wonderful thing that we can live our life understanding. That's why the, the writer of Psalms says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Literally. I mean, how many times if you were honest to step back and evaluate your life, sometimes you realize like, wow, I mean, literally down to the step, like if I'd have been five steps further back, I wouldn't have seen that person, right? Like I wouldn't have connected or if if I would have left five minutes earlier in my car, I would have been in that accident. Or I mean, just the times where we realize that it was totally God's providence directing what we were doing and someone else was doing to cause something to intersect at the right time in the right place and we connect with people and we have these experiences in life and it's not a coincidence. It's God's directing every part of your life 
and that you can rest in that and sort of just live life trusting the Lord, walking with him. That's what the Bible just says, to just walk with God. Because see, if you walk with God, then you're going to be at the right places at the right times and meet the right people and have the right experiences because God will be coordinating all the affairs. And so here, this amazing event happened. So now she is able to confirm the story to the king as he asked her. She probably told it way better than Gehazi did. Let me tell you from a mom's perspective, she says exactly what happened. So verse 6 goes on to say, So the king appointed then a certain officer for her, saying... Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left until now. So the king was so impressed with this story and the favor of, of you know, the king just kind of falls upon this woman now. He's just so thrilled and, you know, because of this story. And again, I just see this all as God working to give this woman the favor that she ends up getting because you're talking about an evil, ungodly king on the throne of Israel at this time. And this evil and godly king graciously says, restore everything back to this woman, and more than that, even give her all the proceeds of the field from the time that she left seven years ago until now. In other words, not only give her everything back, but he says, make sure she's compensated for as much as that land would have produced in its proceeds and profits for a seven-year time frame from the day that she left and she went to the Philistine country. And he just graciously bestows this kindness upon her. And again, taking notice, this is an evil human king. This is not even a godly king in Israel at this time. But yet this king is doing this. Now, I look at that and I think, wow, if that's the heart and the nature of an evil king, how much more gracious and kind and benevolent is our Father, the King of Kings. And how much more does He, when we have need in our life at times, have a willingness to perform acts of restoration? I love what He says, restore all that was hers. Look, God has the power to restore. And sometimes things happen and events unfold in circumstances and situations and, and, and whether it's circumstantial or sinful deeds or you mix the whole bag of that all together and things get stolen and robbed from us and we lose things. And, 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 but you know what? The Bible says that God can restore. It says as well in Joel that he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten away. And God can restore not only some, if God wants to, God can restore all. Let me go a step further. God can not only restore all. This woman, God restored all and then some. So God may not only want to restore some, he may want to restore all. And sometimes he may want to restore all and then add a little bumper crop on top of that. Add a little extra grace on top of that. So this woman benefits greatly because of this king's kindness to her because of the circumstances of the testimony of her sons raising from the dead and all those details come into peace at one time. Verse 7, Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, we've seen much of him, was sick at this time. And it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. Now, Ben-Hadad was familiar with Elisha because he had sent Naaman, the uh, servant of his, this general to him when he had 
leprosy and received a healing. Uh, Ben-Hadad was familiar with Elisha because, remember, he kept giving away his positions militarily. We saw last time that was causing problems in his battles and fights against the king of Israel. But he hears, as he's in a time of illness now, that Elisha, the man of God, is in his territory in Damascus. So the king said to Hazael, take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him saying, shall I recover from this disease? So he says, look, go to him with a present and inquire, ask him if he can inquire of his God to know whether or not I'm going to recover from this disease, this health issue, which seemed to be terminal. So Hazael went to meet him, took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. Now that's a lot of stuff. 40 camel loads, it says, of every good thing of Damascus. You want to talk about trying to seriously compensate and sort of kind of bribe and buy somebody off to do a favor. But again, what does Ben-Hadad know as the king of Syria? Hey, last time I sent Naaman, my servant, to this guy, he came back healed from leprosy. So he says, go with all that you have, the best. I'm the king. I bring the best we have. So he came and stood before him, Haziel, a servant. And he said to him, to Elisha, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, go. Say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Now, what's he saying there? What he's saying to him is, the Lord has revealed to me he's going to recover from the disease. That won't be the end of his life. However, he's going to die in a different way. He'll sh- the answer to his question is, yes, he will recover from the disease. The health issue of the disease is not going to be the end of his life. However, the Lord has shown to me that even though he's going to recover from the illness of his disease, He's actually still going to die soon. Now, this message comes and verse 11 says, then at that point, he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed and the man of God wept. So after Elisha says this to Haziel, the servant, gives him this message to bring back, Elisha then just goes silent and it says he just begins to stare at Haziel. Almost to the point where it seems to, it just starts to get awkward. You know, the, the awkward silence. He just, he just keeps staring at him. He's just looking into his eyes and staring at him until he almost starts to feel like ashamed and like awkward. Like, why are you staring at me? <laughs> like, what you, you're making me feel uncomfortable. And Elisha keeps staring and staring. And no doubt it's because God is letting him see into the window of this man's mind and soul. Again, God's, we're going to see revealing something to him. And it says, the man of God just start to, to weep and he just starts to cry and tears start to run down his face and his heart begins to be broken in this really awkward moment and Hazael said why is my Lord weeping and he answered because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel their strongholds you will set on fire their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child, that is, rip open the wombs of pregnant women, ripping open their stomachs. So at this point, the reason Elisha starts to weep is it says the Lord 
reveals to him the future of this man and the evil things that he's going to do. The, the barbaric, cruel, horrific things that he was going to do, the sinful acts of evil that he was going to do, God was revealing these things and it caused his heart to be broke. As he saw the, the horrible effects, the painful things that the sin he was going to commit was going to bring upon other people, the wounding, the damaging of people and lives, it causes his heart to be broken. And you know, that really should be our response towards sin and towards the effects of sin. You know, I'm sure, perhaps not to this degree of children being thrown down or thrown off of cliffs and pregnant women being ripped open with you know, knives and swords, which were literal things that did happen. These weren't just you know, sort of you know, petty illusions. These were realities of things that would happen historically and circumstantially. But yet, to some degree, I'm certain you and I have all seen the painful effects of people's sinful, evil acts upon others. You know, children being hurt very badly because of sinful, evil acts. You know, you know, families being devastated. You know, whole, you know, whole, you know, ethnic groups being horribly treated because of sinful and evil leaders and dictators. I mean, we have seen the realities of what sin and evil can do the pain and the heartache it can bring to people, how, how cruel we can treat one another because of our sinful acts at times and the pain it brings. So Elisha begins to weep over these things and Hazael, hearing these words, says, verse 13, but what is your servant, he says, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. So as Hazael hears this, that I mean, think about what's being said to him. He, he starts crying and he says, you're going to set people on, and things on fire. You're going to kill people with the sword. You're going to dash children, innocent children, rip open the wombs of pregnant women with children inside. He hears these things and, and he, he's offended. In his humanity, he says there, verse 13, what do you think I am? Some kind of a dog? You think I would do such gross things? I mean, do you really think I would sink that low? You're trying to tell me, what, what do you think, I'm some kind of scavenger dog, some filthy human being that I would do such gross and vile things? I would never sink to such depths of depravity. And yet Elisha says to him, listen, the Lord's shown me not only what you will do, but what you're capable to do as you one day become king of Syria. And the Lord had revealed this to him. Now, Haziel's response is not much different a lot of times than ours is. Because a lot of times, let's just be very humble, each and every one of us, we have this horrible tendency to underestimate our potential to do wrong things. We have this innate, it seems, you know, kind of, uh, you know, feeling towards ourselves that we think we're a whole lot better than what we are. And we perhaps would hear this ourselves, and we would be like, come on, I would never, I would never do something like that. Or maybe we hear testimony of what somebody else did, how somebody did something and, and it was just vile and evil. We hear that story and rather than be humbled or feel pity or feel sorry, instead we instantly become very critical and think, oh, that's horrible. 
and 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 not just so much that to say that it's horrible because we're grieved, but the the idea sometimes is like I would never. How could anyone, as soon as you say that, be very careful? How could anyone? How could he do such a thing to his family? How could she do such a thing to her family? And we think somehow that we're above the capacity to do such gross, vile, evil, wicked things. When the reality is, is listen, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and we don't even know our own hearts. We all have the capacity to do the most vile, gross, evil, wicked things at any given time. And it'd be much better that we have a sober, humbling reality to say, Lord, please, but by the grace of God, there go I. And that I would never look or you would never look upon the vile, evil things that someone else has done or that if someone, and here's the other thing, what Elisha is doing, he's revealing something before it happens. If someone were to caution or warn us to say, listen, brother, you better be careful the path you're heading down. Because you keep marching down that path, you know what's going to end up happening? You're going to end up blank. Come on. I mean, I got this under, there's no way I'm going to go that far. Oh, yeah. The Bible says, when we think we stand, take heed lest we fall. And here, Hazel is this very fitting picture of this poor mistake we often make where we are just shocked by the reality that we could actually do something so evil or so grotesque. And Elisha said, look, the Lord has shown me what you're going to do as you will one day become king over Syria. Verse 14, so then he departed from Elisha, having heard these things and seeing him weeping over this reality. He comes back to his master, and the master once report, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, says, so what did Elisha say to you? Am I going to recover from this disease or not? He wants to know. And he answered, he told me that you shall surely recover. So he passes on that right word from the Lord. You're not going to die from the disease. Now, there should be there dot, dot, dot. Because <laughs> look at verse 15. But it happened on the next day. Wow, didn't take him long. That he took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face so that he died, and then Haziel reigned in his place as king. So the very next day, he says, hey, uh, boss, good news. Elisha said, you're going to recover from this disease. I'm not going to tell you the second half of the prophecy, but tomorrow you'll find out. <laughs> and the next day, his guy comes in with a wet, damp cloth, puts it over the face, and just smothers the king to death. So there's, again, no strangle marks, no fingerprints. He does a very efficient job to make it just look like he had maybe a coronary episode or something. He just smothers him with a wet towel over his faith face and then he takes over and reigns as the new king even as elisha prophesied he would verse 16 now in the fifth year of joram the son of ahab the king of israel jehoshaphat having been king of judah in the south jehoram the son of jehoshaphat began to reign as king of judah so we now turn to the southern kingdom kind of get a report of what's going on down in the south we've been looking at the north quite a bit and he, verse 17, was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done for, now that's a reason word, that should be circled, for, for this reason, 
The daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So take notice, the Bible indicates here that this man, particularly Jehoram, who took over the kingship in Judah at this time, that he walked in the same evil practices of the kings of Israel, particularly just like Ahab. And remember, Ahab was one of the most, if not the most, wicked kings, Ahab and his wife Jezebel, in the history of Israel. The Bible says there had been no wickedness done like that ever before against the Lord. And this man, the king of Judah, Jehoram, practiced those same evil ways. He walked in the same evil practices. And verse 18, the Bible, the Holy Spirit wants us to see one of the main reasons why he lived so ungodly and evil. It says, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and therefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The indication is it was greatly because of the influence of the person he was married to. It was the influence of being married to wicked King Ahab's wicked, ungodly daughter that influenced him to become evil in his own life. Again, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us very clearly again the power of influence that comes from our spouse. And it was predominantly, mainly because of the man, uh, because of the, the person that this man chose to marry, the daughter of Ahab, that he ended up on the evil and godly path that he was on because she had great influence upon him. And look, certainly, women have incredible influence. You know, certainly God has called men to lead, but God has called women to influence and support. And that influence can be used for great good or it can be used for great harm. And in the same way, irregardless of that, there is no person that is going to have greater influence upon us typically than the person that we're married to. It's just a reality. It's not even a biblical reality. That person you're married to is going to have great influence upon you. You share your life with them. You live as one with them. That is why it is so important when someone is heading towards marriage as a single person, a young person, that they be very, very careful and very considerate in regards to who they marry because that person is going to have major influence upon who you are, who you become, and how you live the rest of your life. Look, that's why I think even as believers, well, we don't want to be unequally yoked. Right. You don't want to marry a non-believer, but you also don't want to marry somebody who's just saved that's a carnal, worldly Christian. You want to marry somebody who's saved and who also who loves the Lord and who really wants to live for Jesus and really walk with Jesus, not just say, well, yeah, I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven, but you know, I'm going to kind of live like Lot my whole life. No, you want to marry somebody who loves the Lord and wants to serve the Lord, loves the Lord more than you do because they're going to have incredible influence upon you. And that works both guy to gal, both ways. Look, I've seen it many times over. If you don't believe me, I'd be glad to connect you with a few people who like to tell you who are already in a marriage, listen, honey, let me explain to you what I have to live now every day and the challenges that I have to battle. And you're not married yet, so, so, so let me offer you a little counsel. I'd be glad to connect you with somebody to spare you because the power of influence in a marriage is very strong and this man did great evil for he was married to the daughter of Ahab. That was why. Yet verse 19, the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David as he promised to give him a lamp and his sons 
forever. So God was still gracious despite the evil that was going on in the south for the sake of his covenant to David. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zaire and all the chariots with him. And then he arose by night and he attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day and Libna also being emboldened it seems by the Edomites revolt, Libna also chose to revolt against Judah's authority at that time as well. So take notice, as is often the case when new kings come to power, uh, people test the resolve of the new one on the throne, the new authority, and such was the case here. So at this time, historically, both Edom and Libna felt emboldened to revolt and rebel against the authority of Judah at this time. Now, it, that seems that it was quelled, but yet nonetheless, they had to deal with the revolt and the rebellion and the effects of that. And here again is another illustration of, of sowing and reaping. You know, the Bible tells us that what we sow, we also reap. And at this time, Jehoram was doing what? He was rebelling against the authority of God. He was rebelling against God's throne. As a result of that, he experienced rebellion under his throne and the heartache and the hassles that went along with that. He was kind of just reaping in his own life experience some of what he was sowing by the way that he had been living. Verse 23 says, Now the acts, the rest of them, of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Ahaziah, his son, then reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, you got all these names, right? Test afterwards. King of Judah began to reign. Ahaziah, taking over now in the south in Judah, was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab as well, and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So it seems, again, those connected to the family of Ahab aren't doing too well. <laughs> The power of influence, again, marry into a godly unit. You'll be much more better off as far as the influences and the impacts. Seek to consider that. Verse 28, now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. So they go out together to battle. It tells us at this time that Jehoram sustains some wounds. He retreats back to Jezreel to begin to recover. Ahaziah now goes and pays a visit to him. So look at just a few verses in chapter 9, and we'll have to kind of cap it off there. But it says, Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take a flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, 
the son of Nimshi. So notice, this isn't the son of Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, who we've talked about before. The Bible wants us to know this is just a different Jehoshaphat. This is the commander over the army. His name is Jehu. Go in and make him rise up among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord. I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So at this point, Elisha now, the prophet, gives a word to one of the sons of the prophets. Remember, the sons of the prophets were these sort of you know, younger men of God who were in training preparation for ministry. And he takes one of the sons of the prophets, he pulls him aside and he says, listen, I have an assignment for you. You need to go and bring word, bring the word of the Lord, a prophetic word, to a man named Jehu to let him know that he is going to be the next anointed king over Israel. And God is going to use Jehu, we'll see in chapter 9, to basically finally bring disciplinary action on the house of Ahab and Jezebel and their descendants to bring about the word of the Lord from literally over a decade ago that God pronounced against them in judgment because of the evil and wicked things that they had done. So Elisha says to this young man, the son of the prophets, get yourself ready, take a flask of oil, and go to Ramoth Gilead. So he says, look, prepare yourself. The Lord has something for you to do. God has an assignment for you. So he says, you need to get yourself ready, take a flask of oil. They would use that to anoint the head of someone to indicate it was a symbolic picture of the spirit of the Lord coming upon someone's life. And he says, and go. And you know, whenever the Lord has something for us to do, these same things apply for us as well. Get prepared, get ready, get yourself ready. Do what you need to do to get ready, start preparing, take a flask of oil, you know, make sure that you are in a sense, equipped and filled and, and prepared with the, the Spirit of the Lord, that you have a fresh filling of the Spirit in your life, that you're in tune with the Lord, and then go. And go forth in obedience and bring forth the word of the Lord that he wants you to bring. So again, this man was to go out. It says, verse 3, he was to find him, take him aside in a private conversation, pull him away from his associates. Commander, can I speak to you for a minute? Pull him aside. And then he was to dump the flask of oil, verse 3, over his head, Say, thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel, and then open the door, don't delay, and run for your life. <laughs> I mean, who wants that assignment? You know, go to the general. He's talking to all of his commanders, his lieutenants, say, uh, Commander, can I speak to you for a minute privately? Uh, what is it? I'm having a... Just well, a minute, Commander, can I speak to you privately? Pull him aside, walk up to the military general, who probably, again, is like some Green Beret Rambo type, could just kind of pinch your you know, a trachea and you'll be dead in a second. He says, just pour all the oil over his head and say, thus says the Lord, you're the next king of Israel. And then just turn around and run, run for your life as fast as you can because you just basically proclaim somebody's the new king when there's a reigning king over the king of Israel. So uh, the story gets interesting what happens next time, but uh, you'll have to read ahead and we'll leave you with a cliffhanger there. So let's stand. That's probably the best place to stop uh, in light of where we're at in our story. And, and let's pray and just enter back into some worship and 